Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get on with the interview, I would be remiss not to let you know that my new online course, Medieval Sword and Buckler, which is a complete training course in the art of the sword and buckler as represented in Royal Armory's Manuscript 133, is now ready. And I am launching it this week with a 50% discount that you can find at guywindsor.net forward slash buckler. That discount voucher, the 50% off, will expire on Wednesday. Best crack on with it. If you're listening to this show after Wednesday, the 20th of October, then that same link will take you to the same course, but unfortunately at the regular price. So that's guywindsor.net forward slash buckler, B-U-C-K-L-E-R, for 50% off the brand new medieval sword and buckler training course. See you there. I'm here today with Lauren Shaw, perhaps better known as Lauren Danger Adventure Ranger, who has been producing a series of videos on just about every single historical martial arts topic imaginable, from how to make a buckler to what axes are for and everything in between. So, without further ado, Lauren, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, It's great to be here. And it's nice to meet you. Um, What made you... Oh, beg pardon. My first question... and. It's a good thing we can edit, right? My first question is always and should be, whereabouts in the world are you? Oh, uh, I am in Calgary, Alberta, which is in Canada. It's about an hour from the Rocky Mountains. So it's a beautiful landscape. It's a nice backdrop for studying martial arts or doing pretty much anything. Lovely. Uh, yeah, I know Vancouver reasonably well, and I know Toronto reasonably mm-hmm. well. Um, but that's pretty much my experience of Canada. <laughs> The two really famous cities. Yes. Um, so I think Calgary's more sort of out in the countryside. Um, it's in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, just where the prairies kind of meet the foothills. Settled right there, right in that transition zone. Lovely. So, um, so what made you want to start historical martial arts? How did that happen? Oh, wow. There are two parts to this story. The first part is I remember young Lauren... For some reason, they would put cheesy fantasy movies on TV on Sunday afternoons on a local station, an American station that we managed to get in Canada. And I remember seeing Conan the Barbarian, the, the 1982, oh, the good one. Yeah, the good one. Yeah, the, Yes. The, the, and um, that, that, that is a movie that really, I mean, it's a beautiful movie. It's so well done. Yes. And you have Valeria, and there she is with her sword, and she fights just as well as anybody else in that movie. And how could you not be this little girl enamored with her, you know? She's a, you know, got long blonde hair and a slightly crooked nose. And she is sitting there with the sword just doing the most amazing things, and she fights just as well as Conan does. And it's like that, there's that inspiration. There's 10-year-old Lauren being, you know, swords are cool. I like swords. 
you know, making a cardboard sword. And, you know, it's not, this is the 80s and, you know, maybe it's like, oh, well, shouldn't you be a princess or that? No, don't want to be that. You know, I'd rather be a pirate. And so that's, <laughs> so that's one seed. Now, the yeah. next part of that is then in 1988, this movie came out called Willow. Oh, yeah. And we have the same thing happening again. Um, Joanne Wally is in that movie. She plays Sorsha. And again, there is a woman with a sword. She's fighting. She's, you know, she's the baddie, but she becomes, you know, she's redeemed. She becomes good. Oh, those are spoilers for a very old movie. <laughs> The movie's and been out for like 30 years, I think. I know. If you haven't you seen, seen it, it you should. And so, and there's this one scene towards the end of the movie where she walks in uh, to the, I guess, sorcery chamber. And she just easily dispatches three people and is like, yes. I love that movie. And that movie really speaks to me a lot. It's this whimsical mm-hmm. movie, but it still has that aspect of sword fighting. And some of the swords actually look really good. <laughs> Hey, you know, some of the props are um, almost historically accurate. And, and to a 10-year-old, they're fabulous. Yes. I'm, yes. I'm a, okay, I have two Conan stories for you. The first oh, please. is, is um, well, it's not really a story, but just in case ha- you're unsure as to how I feel about the, the original Conan the Barbarian. Okay, mm-hmm. I have the soundtrack and most of my books are written to that soundtrack. Ooh, it is an excellent right. soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, I have to skip the first, um, the first track on the album because mm-hmm. it's got all the talking in it mm-hmm. about you know Conan yes. wearing the crown of trouble, crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow and all that. Lot. Mm-hmm. And I can't have words going in my head when I'm writing, mm-hmm. but so I skip that track. But and the rest is just on repeat. And yeah, it it really really helps. And the second is you are not the only person who pretended to be Valeria when I was at. <laughs> When I was at school and we had to play hockey, which I had no interest in whatsoever, we had hockey sticks, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I would like be at the back um, as a defender so I didn't have to run around too much because I was extremely lazy. And of course, Conan had a straight sword. So yeah. if I held it by one end, it was a Conan sword. But very often I was holding it by the other end because it balances better that way. And it has that kind of curve on the end. So yes. that was Valeria's sword. So pretty oh, much nice. half the time I was swinging a hockey stick around, I was being Valeria, not Conan. Nice. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm less enamored of Willow. It didn't, didn't catch me quite mm-hmm. the same way. Conan, absolutely. Well, it is. Conan is like the fantasy movie. It is so, it looks good. The colors, it's a vibrant, it's cinematography. It should be the standard. And we unfortunately get a lot of silly movies that don't put any effort into they just kind of pick up props and have a you know rough script and just go out in the woods and film and it's not it's not quite the same yeah you know i recently got into a bit of trouble with um some of my readers because i did this survey on i asked a question to my mailing list about what movies had kind of got you into (laughs) your, your earliest memories of you know what what did you see that made you want to pick up swords and swing them and a lot of people said Zorro, and a lot of people said Three Musketeers. And a few people said Hawk the Slayer. And I remember Hawk Ooh, the Slayer when the it Slayer. came out in the 80s. It's such a great film when you're nine or ten. Yes. <laughs> and I seem to recall watching it like ten years ago or so, or starting it and going, yeah, no, it hasn't really aged properly. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this in this email when I was telling everybody what about 
the responses I'd been getting. And oh my God, I got a deluge of, guy, that movie is still perfect. Don't you dare say a word <laughs> against it. It's so, still yeah, fun to watch Hop the Slayer, but it's you can see the... Yeah, quality-wise, yeah, Conan the Barbarian definitely yes. has the edge. Mm, yes. <laughs> but, that, but there's that kind of quixotic Britishness to Hawk the Slayer somehow. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it is a British movie or not, but it seems to have that sort of slightly, I don't know, Monty Python-esque absurdism yes. about it. it. It has enough British actors in it. It's probably, you know, mm. American production filmed in England kind of feel to it. Yeah. So were you a Red Sonja fan? Um, I liked Red Sonja, but I like the scene where they have all the swords and she's got to choose a sword. That, that's the scene that makes it for me. I think what throws me is you have Arnold Schwarzenegger and you think he should be Conan or Conan in disguise, but there's just... Yeah. And then you have um, Ernie Reyes Jr. He's the kid. And of course, now you have this whole other, you know, martial arts shouty bit that goes in there. And it seems... Like, a lot of... It's not cohesive as a movie. It's got a lot of pieces thrown, mushed together for, oh, we want to appeal to this audience and this audience and this audience, yeah. and it loses something. But Grace Jones is fabulous. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, every time she appears on screen, it just kind of redeems all the mm. crap in the movie. Yes, yes. Uh, fantastic. Okay, so... Um, what are your main research interests? I know this is a slightly dodgy question because you seem to be interested in absolutely everything. But Oh, um, well, I, I seem interested in everything, but that's more from an experience. Uh, what happens is I really like 15th century. I like mm-hmm. studying 15th century arms and armor. I like 15th century martial arts. I like armored and unarmored fighting. Um, a lot of German stuff. I do have a book on... I do have The Flower of Battle, though. I do have Fury. I hope so. I, I do... Oh, yeah, you have to have a Fury. You've got to read. I mean, even if you're like, oh, well, I studied German longsword, but you've got to look at Fury's longsword. You've got to look at the dagger. So I've, it's very much a 15th century study, anything that's 15th century. That's okay. where my passion is found. Um, but I do like Sword and Buckler a lot. Um Obviously, if I'm making bucklers, I have a passion for Zorn Buckler. So I have this kind of little 14th century um, side side projects, I suppose. Um, but that's not where okay. we get most of our manuals from. True. So, so you would sort of you would identify your interests by time rather than by a specific weapon, yes. style, or culture. Yes. Interesting. Okay. I've noticed that some people are into very specific kinds of sword, regardless mm-hmm. of the period, and other people are into very specific periods, regardless of what's actually, you know, yes. in and mm-hmm. around that period. So you're, you're a period person rather than yes. an objects person. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm more of a objects person. So I, 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 obviously I'm probably best known for my Fiore stuff and for my Rapier stuff, but um, I also jump sword and buckler and... 18th century small sword and back sword and all that kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. Basically, if it's a sidearm, I'm interested. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? If it's not a sidearm, then I start to lose interest. Um, so for me, it's more about, you know, can you carry it with your hands free? Yes. Yeah. Um, I like that. Because a lot of the things that when I'm thinking about the research and putting together a lesson plan, um, 
there's a lot of aspect of, okay, there's a system, but is this a system that you could use for self-defense, traveling between towns? Um, so self-defense in period? In period, yes. Right, yeah, yeah. Not self-defense, no. Um, <laughs> we don't... That, this, our this, yeah, our, our arts are not well adapted. Our arts are not no. well adapted for modern self-defense. No. no. Um, um, so but you're, you're training period, with a club. Yes. So you're, you're training with a club in... Okay, who do you train with? Uh, well, we are the Calgary Fellowship of the Sword. Right. Uh, we are Because we're a not-for-profit, we had to have a word from a list and it had to be like society or fellowship. Oh, or whatever. okay. So we, we were really stuck on it for a while. We didn't want to be a society. There's so many societies. It's like, well, we need a different word. And this is actually something my sister came up with. I gave her a list of the words. Um, and she's like, oh, I like fellowship. And then people will think, you know, fellowship of the ring and all these other right. things. And, oh, okay. So I proposed it to our group. We took a vote. It was unanimous. So we became fellowship of the sword. But there is uh, a little bit of, you know, the the disciples of Lichtenauer formed a fellowship. 14 of them or something. Uh, ah, now I can't remember exactly how it goes. But there is a reference to fellowship in a German tradition from the 15th century. So it's like, okay, the, the, now we have a historical way to come into it as well. Because a fellowship seems very much, you know, a bunch of sword fighters got together and went out to be mercenaries. They formed okay. a fellowship. So I, I, I take it you're not actually going out to be mercenaries. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. No. <laughs> no. The only, the only thing we do is we will go out and we will go to a pub. That's... Well, that's fair. Yes. And... and but you don't you don't just steal the beer you you pay no for it. we pay for it yes okay um, and so you started this club is that correct uh yes so how it works is we used to be part of a club and after seven years of me being a member and a few and all of us had been there for quite some time at least five years for anyone else some of them had been there longer uh, the founder of that club was moving away. Okay. And there were some disagreements on how the club would continue. So we decided we would just make our own club. So there were eight of us, okay. and we decided, well, we should make our own club. This gives us the freedom to study what we want, to do yep. our own research, to take turns being instructors on the things that we enjoy. And so that was available in your previous club? Uh, no. The previous club was run very differently. It was okay, we're going to do something for three months and then we're going to switch to something else. And we could vote on what we wanted to train on. Okay. But there wasn't, we didn't have access to the lesson plans. It wasn't encouraged for us to look at sources. It was just show up, oh, really? learn, and, you know, go home. It was very different. Uh, okay. So the founder of the club did the research, had his notes, but that wasn't available to us. Whereas now... Oh. Yeah, it was very different, but that's now... A, that's, a very, we, that's a very odd way to run a club in my Yes, yes. It was very much like other martial arts, you know, Eastern martial arts club where you show up and you do the training and you go home and, you know, how, how can I practice on my own to get better? Well, you don't have to worry about that. But we wanted right. to worry about that. So now as yeah. a club, we will upload things. People want the information. We'll send it out. When we run an intro to Longsword program at the end of it, We'll send out notes. So even if these people you don't want to join up permanently, they can still reference. So whatever they learned, they can still right. practice at home. If maybe they don't like a club setting, but they 
they, you know, once a month, they'll take out a broomstick or they'll buy themselves a training sword. They can look at some details. They can look at a syllabus. They can say, oh, mm -hmm. this says how to do this. Oh, yeah, I remember. I remember my true and my false and my strong and my weak. And they can still practice. And, you know, it, it seems a lot more sensible that people have access to material rather than just yeah. keep it hidden. Yeah, I I am very much opposed to students training at home, which is why I just literally mm -hmm. published a book on how to train at home. Mm -hmm. And I'm very much opposed <laughs> to telling anybody how anything works, which is why I keep publishing my syllabuses online and putting out videos and stuff. Yeah, because no, 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 you can't have students like being self-directed. That's no, no. good. Oh, no. You know, it's funny. It's funny you should say that because actually... Um, I, I don't know if you know, I run this uh, monthly coaches corner thing where, yes. uh, you've heard of it. Yes. Okay. Um, and next month's topic. So on, in October, October the 9th, I think it is. Um, the topic is how to avoid founder writers. So in other words, how to avoid the club collapsing when the founder leaves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And yes. it's basically my, my view of it is basically you have to make the founder redundant by all of the various things that they do and are good at need to get passed on and taught to other people and whatever. So even if there's no one single person who can do all those things, you have, a, you have people who can do all those things and to get people to actually run the club independent of the founder before they, the founder leaves. Yes. That's kind of the, the heart of it. Um, so your solution is actually just to that, just to basically reincorporate as a different club. Yes. So it's basically, is, is that original club still running? No. Okay. Not as far so, as we know. Okay. So, so it died and was reborn as something. something yes. Um, you should have called yourselves the Phoenix. <laughs> All the ashes. <laughs> oh, but there's already a Phoenix. Yeah, I know, so, I know. Yeah. So we, yeah. we, but part of it was, I mean, there were some difficulties. We did have to have six months of not doing anything. Um, I don't want to go into too many too many details because you don't no, no, say no. you don't air your dirty laundry. But when yeah, someone yeah. is moving away but is litigious, you want mm -hmm. to make sure that yeah, oh, we're going to start our own group. Oh well, I'm going to sue you. So we kept it quiet. We just trained without doing anything. Don't recruit members. Didn't. Okay put social media, nothing. We hid for six months, basically just training outdoors mm -hmm. over the summer. When we had our six months up where, you know, the legal advice is you can form your own club now. Then we out of the gate and we're doing well. We run yeah. these intro programs for people, mm -hmm. you know, usually get five to six people and it's a multi-week course. And, you know, we incorporate both, you know, technique. We want historical, some historical accuracy. We want some educational history into it to say this is where it comes from and humor put jokes into it we're often very silly yeah it's it's it's, yeah. it's gotta be fun and, and yes. the thing is if you use humor right mm -hmm. it makes things much easier to remember yes right so make them a bit ridiculous make them funny make them like really disgusting yeah but attach a, a strong kind of mm -hmm. emotional response to whatever it is and it makes it yes. much easier to remember like in our most recent one, we just started um, on Saturday. Uh, there are three teenagers in it. And so of course, one of the teenagers who I actually know, and I'm good friends with his parents, 
And so the subject of the Witcher and holding your sword in the reverse grip came up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what? Okay, fine. Go ahead. Attack with that. And so all, all that happens is beat, attack to the head, right? And so we show yeah. it looks good on film. When we talk about that, you know, movies are okay. We're not going to be the type of club that says, oh, movies are horrible. and don't they? No, movies have to be for a larger audience and they have to be entertaining. We get it. You can do the Conan you know, reverse. Yeah, because Conan does it. Yeah, absolutely. He yeah, Conan does around. it, also- and it's a good, it's a good showy move before you engage in a fight. But when you actually get into a real fight, then it's like okay. But we can do that. We can take these moments to you know, and we're not really embarrassing the student, but we're showing, you know, because we're not taking them and throwing them to the ground and being mean about yeah. it. But sure. you know, we can all have a good little laugh about it and then encourage them to find you know okay, but. That looks good, and you can do that for fun. But now, when you're actually coming into a fight, there are certain things that you need to worry about. You need your timing, your distance. Do you have the reach? If you don't have the reach. So, and this is what teaches them that, oh, okay, distance. I have to know about distance and timing because this movie thing doesn't work about that. And then it cements it into their brains that they have to be conscious of timing and distance. What are their hands and feet doing? Yeah. A long time ago, I was teaching a seminar in Singapore, and my, one of my students set up a seminar for me for Lucasfilm Animation in Singapore. Cool. And I taught a group of um, Lucasfilm animators who were, at that point, working on the Clone Wars. So we did, like, a few hours of Longsword, and then they got the lightsabers out, and they asked me questions about how they thought, you know, okay, we've got this character like this, and this character like that, and you know, how would they fight? How would you think they would fight? And one of them was, okay, we have this character and they're going to hold their lightsaber backwards, exactly like you just described, yes. <laughs> kind of sticking it, which makes kind of sense for a dagger, but less so for a, for a sword. And so how should they fight with it? I said, well, they shouldn't. <laughs> they <were> like, <laughs> but, but they have to. And I was like, ah! And so I had to kind of make up a bunch of <laughs> lightsaber stuff with the lightsaber held the wrong yes. way. Uh, but actually, I can think of one as one example. I've been to a Japanese swordsmanship class once where that, because of the way the the Japanese sword is, is carried, tucked through the sash with the edge up, if you're very close to a person and there isn't room to draw it with a normal grip, mm-hmm. if you have the hand the other way up, you can draw it sort of with the back edge, or the blunt back coming across your stomach and get that troop, that cutting edge out in front of you so you can sort of slice their belly open from very close range it's the only example I can think of of actually using a sword that way that actually makes sense because you'll always find something you see some crazy thing on the movies and go oh that's rubbish and then you find some (laughs) historical example where no actually (laughs) there Uh, is one thing and I mean the movie may have come up to it independently but right There's a use for it. Indeed. Okay. Um, My next question took a little bit of preparation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm actually going to read it off the sheet because otherwise, otherwise I'll get it wrong. (laughs) Okay. Now you have a YouTube channel, which goes into all sorts of aspects of weapons and what have you. But I had a look at a few of them uh, before the interview to kind of, you know, get ready. Mm -hmm. And what struck me most is that the videos all start with a verse. 
Whether we're talking axe or sword, it seems you never do get bored of starting out with a rhyme. You seem to do it every time. So come on, Lauren, don't be shy. Will you please tell us why? <laughs> Fantastic. I like that little rhyme. Tell you why. Yes, indeed. Um, when I was little, I always had an aptitude for language arts. I could forget to do homework for language art, like, oh, you should write a story. I could then make up a story on the spot, read it out to the class, and, oh, very good, well done. That was my homework. I, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't reading the story. I was reading some other homework that I had done, science, you know, essay, but I read a fiction story. So I always had this love of language arts. And... You know, I wanted to be a writer and I got into communications, public relations, I took journalism. Uh, so I have this experience of being a presenter of, of, and the love of words. And, you know, for many literary nerds, love words. And I could go on rhyming, but uh, then it feels too forced. Uh, so I figured you need a hook. When you do a YouTube video, you have to have something of your personality that's a hook. You have to, and I like to put myself into the videos. It's not me being Lauren Danger is this fake person. Lauren Danger is just me. And the videos just seemed like a good idea to have that hook in the beginning. A little introduction, um, a cold opening, but it should relate to what the video is about. And so I came up with rhymes. Now, for my niece and my nephew, we do a lot of rhyming. You know, I like to rhyme with them. And it's a lot of fun to make up little rhymes and songs and stories. And so I do a lot of that. And it just seemed to fit. It's like, oh, well, I need to say something. And it's almost like a song, but the rhyme just came out. And so now I have a Word document with all the rhymes in it. And when it's time, I go, I write up, type up a new rhyme. It takes about... Maybe five minutes. Not every line is good. <laughs> Sometimes you have to throw it out. It's like, this is just awful. And there are certain words that just do not rhyme well. Mm -hmm. They just, you know, it's like point. Point does not rhyme. So you want to talk about thrusting, you know, get to the point. What rhymes with it? Joint. Joint, yeah. And that's pretty much it. It's like, all right, throw it out. You got to start with something else. So Stick your nasty dagger point in his vulnerable elbow joint. There you go. That works. But that's pretty much the only use case for it. <laughs> that is. Uh, and if we're talking about dagger, I should do some more dagger videos. But I have to do some more studying and things are, things are a little heavy with class stuff right now. I have sword and buckler to prepare for. So you've seen a lot of buckler stuff. It's because I had to make some bucklers for sword and buck teaching sword and buckler class. Because hmm. one thing, and now we're having a little digression from the rhyme in the YouTube, uh, one thing to encourage about the club that we have is that we don't want people to have to come into it and spend a lot of money and equipment. Right. We like to have loaner gear. Even if it's a polypropylene training sword to start with, we want them to... You have to find your love for it on your own. If you come into it, you take six classes, ten classes, and you find, oh, it just doesn't click for me, I want to do a different type of martial art. And you spend a thousand dollars on gear. Yeah. That, that becomes that, that, that turns people off. Oh, I have to join this. You know, it's like, okay, if you just have to buy a gi for karate, that's not as much an expense. But if you had to buy all of the 
pads and the mitts and the yeah. everything. It might turn some people off. And it's also, it's been my experience that quite often the people who show up for the first day of the beginner's course and then they show up next week with, I don't know, an expensive sword or mm-hmm. whatever other weapons we're using, it's actually not a good indication that they're going to stick with it. It's yeah. a good indication that they really wanted to buy the kit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really, you know, one of the unexpected benefits of having a full-time uh, permanent training space, like regular listeners on the podcast will have heard this mm-hmm. before, but we haven't spoken before, so I'll tell you. Um, when we had, when, when I got the permanent space, like 24-7, people could come and they could leave their swords on the racks. And after a while, I realized that some of these people, they bought a sword, they left it on the rack, and they hadn't been back for a month or so. So I instituted a rule that if it was dusty or rusty, it could be moved onto the beginner's rack and anyone could borrow it. And within a year, we could equip a beginner's course of like 20, 24 people with a steel longsword and a fencing mask. And I hadn't actually had to buy any of that equipment. The students had bought it and they'd left it there and it had gotten dusty or rusty. And of course, you know, when they came back to class, they go, oh, I've been away for a while. My sword's probably on the beginner's rack. And they'd go and, you know, and the beginners, you know, clean the swords after training or whatever. So it's going to be in reasonable condition. And um, so, you know, no harm, no foul. But, I like that. Yeah, and Good and plan. it was it because it is a real problem, and it's just it's absurd to expect people to drop tons of money at the very beginning on something they don't even know they're going to like, and mm-hmm. it's absurd to expect people who don't have very much money to be yes. able to drop tons of mm-hmm. money into a hobby like this. So yeah, find, finding ways to make it easy for people who to start without having to shell out large amounts of money is a really good idea. Um, so yeah and whatever whatever the club can provide it's always better than nothing Mm -hmm. yeah so that and that's our goal is to accumulate so right now we can equip people for longsword sword and buckler and we are trying to build up a base of sabers so that we can do 19th century sabers so our our interests between the people who choose to do instruction is very different very different time periods and that also suits us because then, you know, you spend four or five months learning something and we can switch something, but we're spending more time learning and we're actually really exploring sources and saying, okay, this is our source and we're doing this source. And whether this is a good idea or not, in reality, we can discuss, but we're going to say this is what the manual says to do. So if we, like we were just doing quarterstaff and that's... Mm-hmm. We, we can talk more about COVID later. So we were doing Swetnam. We we're doing okay. Swetnam staff because that keeps everyone at two meters. And it's like, okay, do we like how this works? Yes, no. We don't like this particular move. There's another one that we like better, but we're going to practice the one that we don't like just so we can understand the source because that's part of why we're doing this now. So do we like what he's writing about this move? Do we want to go back into the guard? Can we do it quickly enough? And the answer, of course, is no, we're not experienced enough in this style because we've never studied it and, before. And quarter staffs are quite hard to get, they get are. good with. Particularly yes. if you're using the full-size English quarter mm-hmm. staff of the early oh, century. That's yes, a, we're using piece. the real thing and you have, you know, we have to be careful and, we, and they break. And we just finished quarter staff. We did our last class last night and we 
pretty much were running out. We had just enough for everyone. If one more had broken, we <laughs> would not have had enough so to loan. What, to what are you making them out of? Ah, uh, well, we actually purchased them. Uh, we had red oak and ash, but some of them are like seven, eight years old now. Um, some oh, of okay. us bought ours at the old club, and we had them right. for personal use, okay. and those are starting to wear out. So we're going to. One of our members, uh, our it's our club president, and he's an engineer, and he built the rig to make hickory staves. Okay. So when they get get back to it, we're going to have twenty brand new staves oh, paid wow. for by the club. If you want Excellent. to, if you want to purchase it from the club, you can you know just pay back the reimburse the cost of that of the material, or you can just have it loaned out. So we have that system where, oh, well, I don't really want to buy it or I can't afford it right now. Well, you can just borrow it. It usually falls on me to bring the loaner stuff to and from class. <laughs> um, 20 hickory quarter stuff. That's quite a lot of wood. I'm not, I'm going to, you know, if we can get the price to about $40 Canadian, I think everyone will just purchase them and then, And you then know, they can bring their own damn one. And they can bring Again, their one, own. One of the reasons that I really, really wanted to get a full-time space was I was totally mm -hmm. fed up of hauling yes. kit around for other people. <laughs> I don't like carrying big bags full of swords for no. to train with. It's not, not what I was yeah. built for. We're not large enough to be able to go after a full-time space, but some of us want that. I would love to have that. Right now, we rent space at two different places, right. and uh, they're not martial arts studios. We just they're fitness studios yeah. that we rent out. So they do, but that's so that having to carry a bag of you know polypropylene long swords, having to bring eight of them, plus you know a few steel ones, and you've got to bring. I've got a big snowboard bag. <laughs> Full of swords, and that's got to come out with me, you know, every Saturday to intro class, you know. But that's, but again, we want that barrier to entry to be limited so that people are that's just right. paying. It helps us cover the rental cost, helps us cover the insurance, and a lot of it we do because we love it. You know, we don't make money off of it, but it's esoteric, as uh, one of my fellow instructors would say. And that's why uh, we do it. I'm you mentioned that you're, you're you're keeping to the sort of doing a block of one thing and then moving yes. to the next thing. Yes. Um, have you experimented with having continuous classes, but say, I don't know, it's long sword on Tuesday nights and quarter staff on Fridays? Um, yes. I mean, that's kind of, it's, it's half works that way. Uh, Saturdays are long sword. Saturdays will always be longsword. Uh, but the winters get quite cold and harsh and snowy and yeah. minus 30 degrees Celsius. So we have to have space. And so it means we have to have people willing to pitch in for that rental cost of space. Mm -hmm. If we had our own permanent space, we would definitely have set nights. Um, so Monday night is advanced class and that's where the block goes and Saturday is usually just longsword. So okay. 15th and 16th century, depending on, we have different little blocks of longsword that we do. So we'll study a manual. So it's like, are we going to do uh, walking Meyer? Are we going to do some Meyer? Okay, that's six classes, a block of longsword. But we're going to do some 15th century longsword. I've got the um, Von Danzig book. Um, so there'll be plays from that. 
that'll be folded in. So we always can do, there's a lot, enough longsword and people love longsword. Let's face it. You know, we can have a, particularly you know, if they've seen Conan. Yes, exactly. And we can have, you know, okay, so now we're going to look at some Fury longsword and let's look at contrast the difference. You know, what's this system like? The guards are very different. Do they have different names? Yes, they do. They have the, the cuts, different names. And we don't really enforce, you know, if we're doing them, you have to learn Italian or German, the terms. We'll translate the English. People will learn the English. It's fine. But it's still fun to show people that there's this larger world of it. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly for one type of sword, there's not just one system. There are so many manuals over two centuries. And then we even have these references in the 19th century to people fencing with longsword again. You see these images and, you know, someone, a Victorian, you know, revival yeah. of something just for, right. for, for, for a hobby. So we can bring yeah, all Cyril that into Matthew class. and Alfred Hutton. Yes. And his friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now back to the verses. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was keeping track. <laughs> okay. That's good. I'm being a bad dinner party guest. And just no, 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 one thing is that if you're looking at viewership, and that's what mm-hmm. you have to do with YouTube, is people aren't going to watch the video. But if you have that little rhyme at the beginning, that catchy little bit, people are at least going to want to tune in and get the rhyme. And then they leave it on for a few minutes, and that helps. Um, not okay. everyone's going to be interested in every video's topic. You know, some people focus on period, some people focus on type of weapon. Not everyone's going to want to learn how to build a buckler, but if you do a little rhyme, if you have something fun at the beginning of every video, people will still watch part of the video. Okay. And that helps too. And that's good for your stats. And that's good for stats. And YouTube is all about oh, stats. Okay. Stats drive me... You know, I try not to look at them, but... I, I, I decided long ago that I w- mm-hmm. there are only two metrics that I actually track. There are only two, right? Okay, strictly speaking, three. Right? One is book sales. Mm-hmm. The other is course sales, like how much money is coming in yeah. every month. Not the numbers of things, but mm. actually how much actual money is coming in every yeah. month, book sales and course sales. And I also keep half an eye on the size of my mailing list. Mm-hmm. Right? And when it gets too big, I get rid of the cold subscribers and it shrinks down a little bit and then it grows gently back up. And so it's constantly being pruned. So I just, I just decided ages ago that it was just far too stressful sort of looking at that kind of it's like YouTube and Twitter and that they're like a popularity contest and the yes. cool kids get thousands of likes and clicks mm-hmm. and blah 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 and I just it's just not a game I like to play no and I've I've got I I put videos out there I watch them lots when I do edits and I like I do one take so I do one take for the rhyme in the beginning Mm-hmm. maybe it takes five or six times sometimes I you know you flub you trip over your words you know I, I should have a blooper reel it would probably be really good <laughs> yeah you should 
And then I do the main content and I film and I do a take and sometimes I'll get eight, nine minutes into it and like, I don't really like how this is going. And I say that to the camera, stop it, delete it, redo it. Okay. But it's all one, one go because I will get to why that is in a second. Once, you know, so I want to watch it several times, make sure that it's a good take, make sure the audio sounds okay. Make sure that I'm looking at the camera. So people are, I'm making that contact with people not staring at the screen so much and I like it okay I've watched it I release it into the wild of the internet and I don't ever watch it again I don't look at it because it, it now it exists as a thing and it's for other people it's not for me it's not for my vanity I didn't make it so that I could watch myself on screen yeah people will email us and say in your book you say this that and the other and so I'm like in what book? Oh, in this particular book, you say this. Okay, mm. on what page? And it's like, because when you produce the thing and it mm. goes out into the world, that's it. It's deleted from yep. your brain. <laughs> it's, it's almost as if hitting publish on a book just eradicates it from memory. Um, it's, like, it's, it's almost like a, like a post-traumatic amnesia because mm -hmm. getting it out there is so awful. Yes. <laughs> But once it's out there, yes, you can just forget about it and, it, and it's, and it's mm -hmm. gone. Um, yeah. So why do you do yours in one take? Now, well, career-wise, we talk about public relations, communications, yeah. this, what I used to do as a career. And I, part of that was I was the program manager and presenter for a school safety program. It was right. my job to go for the local utility, to go to schools, and do presentations for 10-year-old kids about electricity and safety. Okay. This is where Lauren Danger comes from, because I was the danger lady. I would go to schools and teach kids uh, about danger. And so when I needed a Twitter username, because friends had always said, oh, you're the danger lady, because huh, you go and you teach kids about things that are dangerous. And I'd like, well, then I might as well be Lauren Danger on the internet. And so, so my Twitter name, long, long, long ago, became Lauren Danger, and then it just the name kind of stuck. So even though after being, you know, that program was ended and you get laid off and things change. And, but I would spend an hour, hour and 15 minutes just presenting to kids nonstop. We've got this whole program, know it from start to finish and, you know, questions and answers at the end. And it's, it's one take. And those skills just developed for presenting to just, be able to say, this is the subject, I know what I'm supposed to talk about, and just go. And so that's why I do the videos in the one take, and I don't have any editing in the main part of it. Everything is done, these sections, but the section is filmed independently, because it's what I'm trained to do. And it's just easy okay. for me that way, because I have that training. If I have to spend two hours, three hours editing, I would drive me mad. So yeah. I'd rather just do, you know record until I get one good take that I like because, and that's also then when I say I'm, I'm me in the video, I'm not a persona. That's my style. That's just how I present. And so I teach okay. everything as if I was actually presenting to an audience in person. Yeah. I'm actually in the process of editing the videos for my 133 course that's coming out in October. Ooh, and, exciting. Well, how do you think so? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, it is absolutely maddening editing. I absolutely hate it. And so mm -hmm. what I normally do is when we're shooting, I just 
shoot it the way I want it and if it doesn't come out the way I want it I just shoot it again and I don't try and construct Mm -hmm. a better cut out of the raw material it's either because again in my head I'm teaching a class and the students are there behind the camera and I'm talking to them and demonstrating with my partner and exactly and and so on Mm -hmm. yeah I I don't think I could do it the um, the more kind of formal and structured way. Yes. So, I mean, I watch other people's YouTube videos and I notice those tiny little edits. Yeah. You know, the head is just, oh, it's four millimeters off. I, I, I see it. I know you had to do editing. And people spend so much time on it and it's like, I don't, I don't want to edit. So I'd rather, just, <laughs> I'd rather present and record because I yeah. do not want to edit anything. Fair enough. Um, now, you, you were talking about, you know, you're, you're mad about language. Yes. And um, so I have to ask, how come you haven't written a book? Or have you written a book and I missed it? Well, I've written, well, I haven't published any books. I've ah, so okay. had so lots my of stories that I've find. written. I've had lots of fiction that I've written for myself because it's good okay. practice. Um, but I haven't published any of it. Um, good practice for what? Good practice for communications jobs. Good practice for uh, a lot of the writing and editing, which I currently don't have a job in. Uh, But I would like to again. But that's, you know, understanding. I mean, I love Microsoft Word. Maybe I should, but I do. I'm really good at it. And writing and formatting and putting in the sections and the page breaks and being able to... Sorry, you actually like Microsoft Word? Um. Well, I, okay, let's not say wow. I like Microsoft Word specifically, but okay. I like writing and doing the formatting as well. I, but okay. I've been back to school a number of times, and one of those times was to learn technical writing so that you could build documents and do all the layout. And I enjoy that too. So a lot of the writing is, oh, when I do my lesson plans, I do them in Microsoft Word because that's the program I just happen to have. And I have fun actually building the physical part of it as okay. well as the words so so let, let me let me just yes summarize okay so you really like the writing yes you write quite a lot yes. and you like the formatting and you can yes. produce these documents that are like yeah nicely organized and mm-hmm. i do have to ask then why you haven't published anything um partly i'd say maybe there's a bit of a confidence issue you say, okay. is this really good enough? Do people really want to read this? Is it polished enough? And I think I'm a little... Unlike my videos where I just put the stuff out there and present and go, I think for my writing, I might be a little too particular still. You know? Uh, oh, it's not good enough. Oh, no, I could edit this. Oh, no, this this plot point doesn't seem right. Oh, I got to rework this. And I think that maybe it just... I have to just take something format it, put it out there. But then I also have to look about how, and I, I don't want to use Amazon for publishing, specifically. You don't need to. I know. It's and really, so really I need, easy. Yes. It's, re- it's really, really easy to publish stuff. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it all the time. And I know. The hard part is the writing and the editing, and mm-hmm. to an extent, the layout, but I usually pay somebody to do the layout, yeah. and I also pay somebody mm-hmm. to edit, because generally speaking, you need it externalized Mm -hmm. Um, but the actual process of like publishing it you can use ingram spark for like print stuff and Mm -hmm. for example draft a digital for the ebooks and you don't have to deal with amazon at all 
So well, perhaps a winter project for me. Okay, and again, I'm absolutely not trying to make you do something you don't want to do. There's absolutely nothing wrong with writing stuff just for your own amusement that you just Mm -hmm. in your house for yourself, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I do woodworking stuff, and I have tons and tons of bits and bobs that I've made knocking about the place, which they're just for me and they're not for anybody else. And yeah, there's nothing. So, so I'm, I'm absolutely not trying to pressure you into anything, but I just thought I'd maybe just float that question just to see what would, would come up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. So how have you guys survived the plague? Oh, it was difficult. Uh, you know, everything shut down mm-hmm. several times. And the first thing we did was, okay, they want us to be two meters apart in an indoor space. And it's cold in winter and we can't go outside. So we will learn quarterstaff. It's a good solution. So we had this idea, we need to learn quarterstaff, which gives us the best distance. Swatnam gives us the best distance. Holding staff at one end, you've got two plus meters. Okay. We were doing military, 19th century, we're doing hut and saber. Everyone's having a lot of fun learning saber. It is a lot of fun. But you can't do saber. We're too close per all of the rules. So yeah. we're going to be indoors. And they wanted us to wear masks indoors while training. So we went to quarterstaff. Got outside. We started it. Then everything was shut down. We weren't even allowed to gather outside wow. for a while. Yeah. So it stopped. It restarted. It stopped. And it restarted. <laughs> so we just finished doing quarterstaff the third attempt. We just finished last night, which we started. So we've, we've gone through a syllabus. We've moved through. We're going to take a little break from it while we get set up to make new staves because we're running out because they break, they crack, they chip. They... So that was our solution. And when we were, the summers are fine. When we were allowed to gather outside in large groups, because fresh air, we could go outside, we could train, we could do lots of stuff. And we really worked at doing court staff, which takes a lot of effort, as we discussed. You know, it, there's a lot of practice and it is the real thing. It is a live weapon. It is an actual, can hurt you. So we have to make sure we stay safe with that as well. So we don't bring new people in to do quarterstaff. And that's one thing. So there are people who are, oh, I'd love to learn quarterstaff. But if you don't know that person, you don't know how safe they're going to be. You don't just want anyone off the street to jump into it as their first weapon and hit someone in the head because it is the real thing. So you really do at least need to meet the people before you bring them in. I mean, I'd say 95% of the people are fantastic and they'll be just fine at it. But if you have 5% of the people that are a little overly aggressive... It only takes one. It only takes one. And then we've got an insurance claim. We have an injury. We have problems. And someone has a concussion because they got hit in the head with a sack. And even with a mask, it's still... It is oh, the yeah, real fen- A fencing mask is no defense against a quarter no. at all. No. It just crushes through it. You might as well wear a paper hat. Exactly. So we are, we'd rather, so it's something that we weren't able to grow as a club very much doing staff. 
and we weren't allowed to do anything else because of the distance we had to keep. Indoors, they were at three meters at one point. We don't have any three-meter weapons. So three meters Pistols. apart, indoors. Crossbows. Crossbows. Oh, I would, lo- I would love to own a medieval crossbow, but I don't think I can, A, afford the crossbow, and B, afford the shipping to get it all the way to Canada from someone like Todd. Well, get, get, nice your, get, get your engineering friend to make one. Oh, we, we will they're probably not, make it. They're not that hard to make. No. Uh, a, a reasonably low-powered sort of mm-hmm. clinking crossbow is quite easy yes. to make. A proper full-power medieval war crossbow is a different proposition altogether. Yes. But yeah, I've made We it. probably would make a trebuchet first. Ah, trebuchets are great. Yes. And so you can make it have... any size. Yes. I mean, I, I have a friend who has a trebuchet that's about... I guess it's it's about the size of two dining chairs put back to back. That's the kind of size of it, hmm. and it is awesome, good fun to play with. Oh, now now I'm getting inspired. I, I'm <laughs> I'm not the engineer, but as as club treasurer as well. That's my role. Okay. I will authorize the funds to buy the materials to build <laughs> to, the trebuchet. To make a <laughs> well, it's it's a very important history project. I mean, if you're into like yes. 15th century medieval stuff, I think exactly. There should be a trebuchet in your future somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, a mini, just big, just powerful enough to throw a pumpkin. Yes. With a satisfying splatter. Yes. Yeah. Yes. For a pumpkin, you probably want something uh, quite a bit bigger than two dining chairs put together. Mm-hmm. You need something maybe the size of a car. Yeah. We could do it. We could do that. Yeah. Well, you need a place to keep it too. Yes. The we have trebuchets a... is looking after them. They're, they're like horses. Yes. You know, they need a lot mm-hmm. of space. Yes. Well, that's what one thing we're lucky. We have someone who does have a few acres of land outside the city where they live. Oh, handy. So ah, yes, build that's where we together. that's where we do our November. We go and beg all of the neighbors for their old pumpkins after Halloween because Halloween mm-hmm. is a fairly big thing in Canada. And then, you know, the few sharp swords that we have, we chop everything up and make compost. Oh, excellent. So yeah, uh, that's. There's, there's nothing quite like cutting resisting objects with sharp swords. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's deeply yes. satisfying. Um, so it, it sounds to me like you've done quite a lot of stuff, um, but I do have to ask because, you know, this is a regular yes. interview. This is one of my regular questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Selling everything I own and moving to Europe. Okay, Why? Well, one, I have family, some family in England, so I have a home base, but there's just so much I want to see, and I want to travel in France, I want to travel, you know, there's a, not that I want to do the touristy cruise down the Rhine to look at the castles, but there are so many things to see all across Europe, into Hungary, into Czech Republic, all of the, if I like the 15th century, right? I should I got to see go, Prague. I've got to go to Prague one day. Exactly. And, and it's to fly from Canada to go somewhere and only get one or two weeks. I, if I yeah, had a base, if we lived in Europe and had a base where you could go somewhere for four or five days, you could do your little weekend trips. You could. Yeah. And the flights would be extremely affordable. Yeah, or take, take a, a train. train. Oh, I love the train. Yeah. Okay, in Britain, trains are really expensive, but in, in yeah. mainland mm-hmm. Europe, they are super cheap and comfortable and clean and yes. safe. And um, 
So, okay, so why haven't you done it? Uh, one, I had a job. Two, I'd have to be able to sell the house and there's a lot of renovations I still want to do before I can sell the house. Okay. Three, I have two cats and I don't want to move them. But they're old. So will this happen? Probably. Probably. Okay, Probably. so so you're going to spend the next little while doing up your house, mm-hmm. letting your cats gently age out, mm-hmm. and console yourself for their, no doubt, painful loss by flying to Europe and reveling in castles for yes. six months or a year or something. I do want to go to um, Guy Delon, the project in France, where they are building oh, yeah. the little castle there. I do yeah. need to go. And I speak I speak enough French where I could order food off of menus and get directions. Like, You're Canadian. You have to speak French. Yes. Well, a lot of Canadians don't. They figure like 92% of the population should speak French and don't. Uh, Je parle un peu français, oui. Um, merci. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so that sounds like an idea that you haven't acted on yet. Yet. Well, I hope to act on it. Okay. And so what you also need is for your YouTube channel to go gangbusters and make you absolutely tons of money to finance the whole thing. <laughs> True. That would be nice. Am I Truth anywhere near that? No. But, I have to but, say it's unlikely, like, given the nichiness of the topic. Yes. Uh, and I don't... You, and I YouTube is a volume game, right? You need millions yes. and millions of hits to get mm-hmm. anywhere. And so you need a pretty general interest thing to get. Yes. To really get it right, I think. To, to make that like, really proper. To make, put it this way, pottering around European castles for six months kind of money. You need a lot of. But actually, speaking of which, okay, my wife watches this Return to the Chateau or renovating some kind of chateau program where basically these people have bought run-down French chateaus and are doing them up, and they're YouTubing mm. their thing. And sometimes it's ordinary TV programs. I think she started out watching them on Netflix or BBC or something. And there are, of course, like YouTube channels for these sorts of mm-hmm. people who are renovating these chateaus. And okay, and one of them has this Patreon thing, um, which is making her a quarter of a million dollars a year. Oh yes, my. for making, for basically for making videos of fixing up her chateau. Can you imagine how niche that is? And yet, look at it. So there is actually possibly hope for your YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you might, you think, might want to look into the chateau thing. Maybe. Thankfully, I didn't go into making YouTube videos as um, a means for financial support. <laughs> I went no. into it because I, it was a good way for me to practice. Communicating. Communicating and on a subject I like. And if it... I I see myself not as a particular HEMA expert, but like a brand ambassador. Okay. You know, the greeter, the welcomer. Come on in. Right. Welcome. Let me show you all of the things that you could learn. And then if that directs people to, for example, Fiore, and they want to... One one would hope. (laughs) One would hope. Then that's fantastic. That's the idea is to then is to bring people in. I don't want to because there are a lot of people who've studied longer than my 10 years who are really good at teaching their specific subject. And I'm not going to 
weep in and say, hey, no, I'm better than anyone. No, I wouldn't do that. But if I can be the one that gets someone new into the hobby, the sport, the art, the science of sword fighting, then, then that's great. That's, that's really how I want to see myself. That's the legacy I would want to build. And eventually I will stop doing YouTube videos, but I want to leave them there so that people can then come along and discover this little 10 minute, easy to get into video that explains a type of sword, any type of style and how you use it. And it's, hey, that's really cool. And then they find a club near them or they find, you know, online instruction and it just propagates. And it, yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, and that's actually, that's pretty much the reason um, why I got you on the show. Oh. Was because, like, one of the the reasons for doing this podcast mm-hmm. is to hear from lots and lots of different kinds of people, from, with lots and lots of different backgrounds and experiences, so that people coming in will see that there are lots of different ways to do this, and yes. it suits lots of different kinds of people. And you don't have mm-hmm. to be this one particular, I don't know, middle-aged, bald, white dude <laughs> to, to do historical martial arts. Right? Um, yes. Excellent. Okay. And now, my, I think I could probably guess the answer, but you, you cannot say, I'll spend it going around Europe looking at castles. <laughs> Somebody gives you a hoofing great chunk of money to spend improving historical yes. martial arts. How would you spend it? Okay. Uh, we'll say a million pounds, because in Canadian, that's almost $2 million. Right. So, um, the first thing I want to do is support Wiktonown. Okay, that's yes, good choice. Um, people need access to sources. Maybe they can't exactly buy a book, but it's nice to be able to go and see the images, to see some translations. It's a... Uh, a fantastic site. I have lots of manuals, but there are times I'm at the laptop. Oh, where, where are my books? They're in under the room. Quickly go in, look it up. I use Wiktonout all the time. Yeah. I have all the books and mm-hmm. I still use Wiktonout. It's time. fantastic. And yeah. So, you know, I would love to have put a, lot, a big chunk of money onto that. Support okay. Wiktonour. Make sure people have access to that. There are people who live where there aren't clubs. Maybe they don't have the money to get all of the manuals they want, but it's a good chance for them to preview them and then say, oh, I really like this. And then they can purchase one that really appeals to them. So support Wiktonar. That's step one. Step two is to create a grant program for small clubs. Okay. So I had this crazy idea. If I had the money, people could apply for a starter pack. So if you were in a place that didn't have clubs uh, nearby okay. and there are three or four of you, you could, there would be an application process because we do not just want to throw free swords to everyone because, I mean, yes, if we had infinite number of dollars, we would just give swords to everybody who wanted one. Um, but we can't do that realistically. But what if, you know, oh, we live in this small town of 50,000 people and there are four of us who would love to train, but we only have a karate school and that's it. We don't want to learn karate. We want to learn sword fighting. They could make their own club, apply, and you would get them a copy of a manual or a source book or someone's instruction book. Oh, they want to learn Fiori. Well, hey, let me tell you about Guy. Let me tell you about <laughs> Dr. Guy Windsor, and I will, we will send you four training swords and 
a book to help you learn. And so, but it wouldn't be that we give them the money. We would send them the stuff. So this organization would then order from a manufacturer or supplier, would then ship them what they needed and help them start their own club. And this would help to propagate the hobby. That's a really good idea, actually. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So now to play the lotto and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you might might need more than the two million Canadian. Yes, I think so. You would need... Actually, I don't know. If you if you didn't give a big too big a chunk of money to Wickdenell straight away, maybe yes. just give him a hundred grand or something, which I'm sure Michael yeah. would be very happy with the hundred <laughs> grand. Um and then you need to invest the rest somewhere so you have this income that you can use to buy swords and distribute them. Mm-hmm. Um but if we're looking at training equipment, like four people if we have say four Regany long swords and Four fencing masks and that's like two thousand Canadian, maybe something yeah, like that. Maybe, yeah. And if you're making, I don't know, five percent interest, you've, you're getting under two million. You're getting what ten grand a year, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's enough to equip like four new clubs a year, five, maybe five. I'm rubbish at math, so someone listening to this who's good at arithmetic in their head is going to go, <laughs> guy is crap with numbers. But, but yeah, I, he, that's actually a realistic prospect, even even without too much mm-hmm. money to put in. Huh. That's given me an idea. Because there, there, are, there are times, like, um, I don't post on Facebook very much. But I have it because there are some groups. There's a Yukihima group and other ones. And there's always this, oh, I live here. Are there any groups nearby within an hour Everyone travel? Everyone keeps asking that. Yeah. Hey. Everyone, that's always a question. It's like, I live in this place and there are 4,000 people and you don't really. But if you had a couple of friends and you wanted to make your own little club and you could affiliate with another club, but you need your start. And not a lot of clubs can mm. loan you stuff, especially if they're a few hours away. Across the United States, there are such vast distances to have to travel. And there are so many big cities that don't have HEMA clubs. Well, so this idea came to me. It's like, I'm always seeing these questions. I'm always seeing people looking for a club. How far do I have to drive? Is it within an hour? Are you going to drive an hour, two hours for a 90-minute class and then an hour to two hours back home? That's a... I've had students who did that regularly for a couple of years, but it's not common. It's not common and a lot of people don't want that. Well, but if you could have your own little club and mm. we could somehow help that and, become a reality. And the pandemic has made great. online instruction much more of a thing. Yes. So, I mean, I, one thing I absolutely know that some clubs do is one of their members is signed up to one of my online courses. And when they're doing one of those subjects, maybe Fury Longsword or whatever, they literally just open up the laptop and press play and I teach their class for them. Right, you know, yeah, just just off the recorded stuff. I mean, I don't even know about yeah. it until like a few months later. They email me saying, "Guy, we were having a really good time with this." And I'm like, "Oh, that's exactly oh. what I made those courses for. Good." Yeah. Um. So yeah, with with the right sort of support package mm-hmm. of sort of instructional materials, videos, books, that kind of stuff, and equipment, mm-hmm. that's it. That's actually 
Okay, most most people who I've interviewed, I mean, this is one of my standard interview questions. Mm-hmm. Most people have come up with something like massive and you know, well, like Mike Lowe's wanted to paint the inside of a castle or paint a castle to make it mm-hmm. look like it would have looked in the, the original period, yes, or beautifully. You know, that is such a Mike Lowe's answer. It is, isn't it? And it's like, yes. do you know that's fantastic? But I, I just can't see why I can help with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, your suggestion—it's actually surprisingly feasible, huh? Okay, I'm going to give that some proper thought. Give people swords. <laughs> yeah, really what but it comes not down just to give it. people swords. Give no. people. There has to be some hoops they have to jump through yes, so that exactly. they'll actually it'll, the swords will go to the right people and yes. they'll actually use them and mm-hmm. it will be money well spent. But yeah, huh. That's a really interesting problem or solution. Either one. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, you've got me all thoughtful, which is not... I'm, I'm well, supposed that's... to be sort of like engaged and chatty and talking and stuff. I'm not supposed to sit here thinking about this thing you've just said for like five minutes while the listeners go, has my app stopped working? <laughs> well, that's part of my goal is to get people thinking and engaged. And yeah, sure. That, so I, I have accomplished my goal today. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, thank you very much for joining me then, Lauren. It's been delightful. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lauren Danger Adventure Ranger, or Lauren Shaw, as she is more commonly known, perhaps. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting, for writers, game designers, and martial artists. And just a reminder that this week only, you can get my Sword and Buckler training course, that's the Medieval Sword and Buckler, based on Royal Army's Manuscript 133, at guywindsor.net forward slash buckler for 50% off. That will expire on October the 20th. And if you are listening to this after October the 20th, I am very sorry. You should keep up with the podcast more regularly. Ha! That'll teach you to subscribe next time. But that link will still work. It'll just take you to the sales page at the regular price. Sorry about that. Of course, as always, I would like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. Uh, I do what I can to make my patrons' lives that little bit better. So for instance... And this is a topical example. My patrons have a bigger discount on the 133 training course because, well, they deserve it. So um, patrons also get behind the scenes content and can submit questions for future guests. If that sounds like your sort of thing, join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks also to Andrew Lawrence King for providing the harp music from John Dowland's Battle Galliard. Originally for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook, but now it's been co-opted for use in the podcast. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Tobias Capwell, author of two of the best books on armor ever written, which include, which are Armor of the English Knight 1400 to 1450 and the brand new Armor of the English Knight 1450 to 1500. I thought he should probably call the sequel like The Return of the English Knight or The Revenge of the English Knight, but no, he just went with a more sensible <laughs> title. Anyway, it's a fascinating conversation. Toby got into 
the museum business is um, curator of arms and armor at the Wallace Collection, which is it's the kind of job that most of us would chop our legs off to get. He didn't chop his legs off to get it. He got into the museum business by jousting. <laughs> Seriously. It's definitely our kind of show. So, so make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, please do leave a review. It really does help. And of course, if you can think of someone who would particularly enjoy my conversation with Lauren, please send them a direct link to this episode. Nothing beats a personal and personalized recommendation. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.